this morning, Acts chapter 20. And I want to just say a quick word next Sunday is our Back to Church Sunday. And uh, we do this sort of on an annual basis, coming to the end of summer and coming after all of the travels and things to say, hey, here's a Sunday to hit reset. We're on the other side of Labor Day and coming into a new season and school is back. Uh, I want to just encourage you, church family, this is a, a great way to invite people to come to church. You ever do this where you're like, hey, you should come to church with me sometime, and people are like, man, I'd love to do that sometime. And sometime just sort of is this vague, you know, out there, I'll, I'll come with you sometime. This gives you kind of a concrete, hey, our church is doing a back-to-church Sunday. This is a great time to kind of to, to, to get back into that habit or start that habit. Why don't you come with me this coming, this coming Sunday? And we're going to have a special gift for every family who is uh, in attendance next week. Um, so I just want to encourage you to use that as a, an excuse, as an opportunity to invite neighbors and friends and family who maybe don't have a church home, maybe don't uh, regularly assemble with God's people uh, to, to come out with, with you at that time. Acts chapter 20, we'll go ahead and just read our text. So if you could follow along, we're going to begin reading in verse number 17. And uh, this is at the end of Paul's uh, third missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and eventually go to Rome, and that's where the book of Acts will end. And he's taking a swing through the city, uh, or, or the, uh, near the city of Ephesus, and he's going to meet with the leaders of that church. So follow along as we read, beginning in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, that is the Roman province of Asia, not the continent of Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, those are trials which befell me, by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you or, or announced to you, preached to you, and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit, or even bound by the Spirit, we see this is the Holy Spirit, unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me or await me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record, or I testify to you this day that I am pure from the blood of all. For I have not shunned, I have not drawn back to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you the overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. And remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. I brought a, a little prop with me this morning for the sermon. This here is a mirror because we really want to reflect well on God's word. No, this mirror is a reminder for me that as I preach this message, I'm more or less preaching to myself today as we talk about biblical leadership, and I'm just inviting y'all to listen in. All right, you guys are invited today to eavesdrop on a, a passage of scripture that we just read that's addressed to pastors, saying, here's what pastors should be doing. Here's the job description, here are the qualities, here's the marks of what Christ-honoring leadership should look like. And so I'm asking all of you as a church to listen in so you know what, what, what Christ-honoring leadership should look like within the body of Christ, so you can know how to pray, how to support, how to identify what good leadership should look like. Now, I'm not asking you or, or even suggesting that you tune everything out saying, good, I'm not a pastor, I'm going to close my Bible and open my phone and start scrolling Twitter. Uh, I, I ask you to, to listen attentively. This is God's word and God's word given to God's people. There is a reason why God has given to us uh, his, th- this passage of scripture. Um, and it's, while it's speaking about and to pastors, it really is for all the church of God. It is really for all the people of God. But please hear me. As I am preaching today, I am not pretending that I have this down. So don't think and be like, who's a pastor, Sam? He is so audacious to think that he's doing everything this text is saying. I recognize that I am, I am fallen. I recognize that I am human. And there are plenty of areas that Acts chapter 20 speaks to where, where I need to grow, where, where I need God's grace to, to help me, just as all of us are in the middle of our sanctification. So here's what I would ask, that you say, this is what I need to pray for God to be doing and helping Pastor Sam to do. Um, and also show grace as God continues to work and to grow in my life and in the lives of our other leaders here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. We've been doing a series over the last several weeks that we have called Active Church. We've been sort of going through different passages in the book of Acts and looking at how they speak to what the church should be and what the church should be doing. In other words, what are sort of the core values, the things that we value and esteem and say these are important in the life of Cloverleaf Baptist Church because they are modeled for us in the Word of God. If you'll remember, we started back in Acts chapter 1 with our disciple-making mission. So very clearly, the, the narrow mission, the focus, the thing that, that, that we as a church are to be doing that no other institution can do is to be making disciples uh, of all nations until Jesus comes back. We considered Bible-saturated teaching. We looked at Acts 2, uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, as an example of expositional, sort of Bible-based, text-driven preaching where the Word of God sets the agenda and sets the direction of a church's teaching ministry. We consider gospel-centered fellowship at the end of Acts 2, after the, 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 the word is preached and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. They're, they're gathering and they're fellowshipping and they're enjoying fellowship that's not just sort of like, hey, we like each other. But something they share in common is the gospel of Jesus, centered in and based in and rooted in the gospel. 
We considered spirit-empowered evangelism as we looked at examples through the book of Acts of, of what evangelism is, of making the good news of Jesus known and calling men and women and boys and girls to repent and believe in Jesus. And then last week, we considered God-focused worship. It's just baked into the very identity of what the church is. The church is a worshiping assembly. It's our identity. It is our mission. It's what our gathering should be all about. Well, today we're going to finish off that series with a look at Christ-honoring leadership, which is not so much a, a core value as it is sort of underlying and supporting and accomplishing these other goals. God has given to the church pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4.11, for the goal of bringing God's people to maturity. In other words, to see that these other values are kept before God's people, to, to ensure that the mission is kept front and center. So what should a church's leadership structure look like? A lot of churches today have the idea that sort of anything goes, right? If it works, let's do it. And if we see sort of certain types of leadership working well in the secular world, well, let's sort of sprinkle some Bible and bring them into the, into the, into the church. Um, my starting premise is that God has told us how he wants his church to be organized and led. And we'll see that here in, in Acts chapter 20. What should church leaders be doing? Some people have expectations of their pastors that, while not bad, go far beyond the essential things that God has called pastors and deacons to, to do, uh, which is primarily, as we see in this text, to, to, to handle and to declare the word of God. And the main question I want to ask and answer today is, what traits should mark healthy church leadership? What should Christ-honoring leadership look like in, uh, within the church of Jesus Christ? So here we have this address that Paul gives to the elders at Ephesus, and they lay out for us Okay, hold on to your hats. We're going to have eight marks of Christ-honoring leadership. I know you're doing the math. Normally, my points are about 30 minutes long, so we'll be here for about four hours. I, I will try to move through these at a, at a reasonable clip. Um, we could have divided this into sort of two chunks, and really the text does divide into two main parts. We get really, if you look in verse 18 down to verse 27, Paul is talking about his ministry. Right, like, here's my ministry, what it was like among you, and then what my ministry is going to be like when I go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 28, it, it shifts, right? Verse 28, he begins speaking directly to the elders, directly to the pastors, and speaks to them through the, the rest of the address. Uh, I'm putting these, things to, these two things together. Why is Paul giving his example of his ministry? Why is he saying, here's what my ministry looks like? It's because by so doing, he's saying, here's what your ministry should look like. He's saying, here's what I did and I'm about to exit off the stage, and you are going to carry the, carry the play forward. I'm handing the baton off to you, and you are to continue doing what I started. So Paul's example and Paul's exhortation really come together into one to show us what leadership should look like. All right, so without further ado, let's talk about the first of these eight marks of Christ-honoring leadership. The first mark of Christ-honoring leadership is that it is shared leadership. We see this in verse 17. So here Paul comes to Miletus, which is a port. Okay, if you read verses 13 to 16, Paul is traveling by ship on his way across sort of the Mediterranean world on his way to Jerusalem. And you get a whole travel log. You can break the maps out and see really where he was. He doesn't go to the city of Ephesus itself, probably for the reason that uh, there's intense opposition. You'll read, if you read back in Acts chapter 19, there was this huge riot. He's not interested in, in stirring up more opposition. He's trying to get to Jerusalem at the fastest way possible. So he comes to this port of Miletus, which is about 30 miles from Ephesus. Verse 17 says that he called or summoned. Paul, remember, is an apostle. He has unique authority. 
that does not belong to pastors anymore. It's authority that was temporary, and if we want to see apostolic authority, it is conveyed to us in the scriptures, the word that Paul and, and, and Peter and John and others wrote. So he has this authority, and he summons the elders of the church. And you say, the elders, he just called all the people who were like, everyone over the age of 50, come to this meeting. Uh, when you come across that term elders, sometimes in the Bible it can refer to those who are older in age. But more often than not, it is a term that refers to those who are in a leadership position within the church. Uh, this, we see this in the Old Testament. The, the tribes of Israel had leaders that were called the elders. The synagogues of the first century were led by a council of wise and godly men who were called elders. And so it was entirely natural when Christians began to start churches that they carried that model with them. Uh, so when you see the word elders, the word we use most commonly today to describe this office is the word pastor. Okay, so the, you see elders, just put in your mind, elders equals pastor. Okay, it's the same thing. It's not, we know what a deacon is, we know what a pastor is, and you're like, well, elders are somewhere in the middle. No, elders are pastors. Uh, just so you know, that word pastor is only used one time in the New Testament to refer to the office of elder, and that's Ephesians 4.11. God gave to the church pastors and teachers. However, the, the word does show up. If you look down in verse 28, Paul says to them, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves... And to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. That same word shows up in other books in the New Testament as the word bishop. Okay? Bishop does not refer to a super pastor who has authority over multiple churches. That's not what it refers to. It's simply another word to refer to pastors. And then he says, take heed that you feed the church of God. You see that word feed? If you like to circle words in your Bible, circle that in verse 28. And right off to the side... Pastor, that is the verb form, to, verb form to pastor or to shepherd. The word pastor simply means shepherd. The word bishop simply means overseer. So here's what we see here is Paul calls these guys, call, they're called elders, and then he tells them, I want you to oversee the church of God, and I want you to pastor the church of God. Here's the point, very simple. These three terms, elder and bishop and pastor, are all referring to the same office. They're not three different offices that you sometimes see in you know, in some traditions where there's bishops and then there's archbishops and popes and cardinals, there's not this hierarchy, it's just referring to pastors. The New Testament knows only two offices in the church. One of those is the pastor or elder or bishop. There's one of them, the leadership position. And then the other is deacon, which means servant. So that's who we're talking about with the elders. Now, the point I want to just draw your attention to, notice it's in the plural. He called for the elders of the church singular. This one assembly within the city of Ephesus had a team of men called the elders who led it. You say, well, that's interesting. Back in Acts 14, verse 23, we see Paul in the churches of Galatia. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. We go a bunch of places. And actually what we're going to do this evening is basically expand on this idea. And I want to defend the idea that churches should be led by a plurality of pastor elders. We see no example in the New Testament of a solo pastor leading a church. It's always a pastor as part of a team where leadership is shared. You can think about a lot of advantages to that. Uh, when you have sort of one guy who's leading it, if he messes up, it messes the whole thing up. There's no one there to hold him accountable. But when there is a team, the authority is shared among the men, among the group of men who lead the church. By the way, pastors and elders in the Bible are always and only and exclusively men. All right, There's no room in the Bible for ordaining women to be elders, to be pastors. Just want to jump on that landmine really fast. Spiritual authority in the Bible is never vested in a single man, but in a team of mutually accountable men who serve together. 
There's no New Testament basis for the model that is common in most Baptist churches of a pastor who then has a group of deacons who function as the board of directors who make decisions. Deacons are not a decision-making body in the New Testament, but they serve the practical needs of the church. Just different than what we often see, and there's reasons why that morphed. So all that to say, I think as a church, faithfulness to Scripture would mean transitioning to a true plurality of pastor elders. Some will be paid, some would be unpaid. We'll talk about that tonight. But here's the point, is healthy leadership is shared leadership. It is accountable leadership. This is true across the board. Think about the places where you have authority and you have influence in your life, in other people's lives. It's never healthy for you to have unaccountable leadership where there's nobody who can call you out. It's wise in a marriage to share the leadership in your home with your spouse to say, well, let's talk through, make this decision together. Yes, God has called husbands to be the heads of their home. But there is wisdom in sharing that, elite, that leadership. There is great wisdom in having people that you seek counsel from. When you have a, a pastor, a team of pastors who can give counsel to one another, that can ensure you from driving the car off the cliff because you, you didn't think about the fact that there was a cliff. It's wise for you to get counsel. When you have to make a big decision, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, right? It's true in the life of a church for pastors to, to have counsel together. It's true in your own life when you have a big decision to make. Genuinely seek counsel from people who are not going to just rubber stamp what you want to do, but from, from mature people, from godly people, from wise people who can give you good guidance. It's good to invite input. It's good to disperse authority. It is good to have mutual accountability. So it's shared leadership. Here's the second feature of it, and this is now we get into Paul's address itself, servant leadership. So verse 18, he calls them together, and he, when they were come to him, it says, you, you know from the first day I came into Asia... Verse 9, what I was doing, I was serving the Lord with all humility of mind. So notice that word serving. Paul says when I, his ministry, his leadership, as he modeled that before them, and he says, you guys know this, you saw this, I don't have to convince you of this. You saw how I led, how I ministered while I was among you, and it was marked by serving. Serving. Not lording it over God's heritage, as Raymer read. Uh, the, the model, the biblical model for leadership are not leaders who dominate and berate and manipulate, but leaders who serve, leaders who are humble. Not leaders who are dictators, but leaders who are servants. So Paul says, I, I served the Lord. He's not ultimately serving the Ephesians, saying, what do you guys want? I'll give you whatever you want. That's just people-pleasing. He says, I was there ultimately to serve and to please the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that I served. He is the Lord before whom I bowed. His authority is what is ultimate. We, did you notice how we structured the service today? We knew we were talking about leadership, so we are like, let's talk about the ultimate supreme authority of King Jesus. You can only have healthy authority when that healthy authority recognizes the lordship of King Jesus. No pastor, no leader, no preacher is the Lord or the owner of Christ's church. Only Jesus is the king of his church, right? No government can tell a church what to do. Only Jesus is the king of the church. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. This is one of the staggering things about the New Testament model for leadership. Normal human leadership says leadership is about exercising authority and control and dominance. Jesus comes and completely flips the script to say, whoever would be greatest among you, let him be your servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Completely upends the natural order, the normal way that we think about authority. Sometimes this comes up in discussions about sort of, you know, headship and submission within marriage. And people chafe to say, man, if, if a husband is to be the head of the marriage, that means the wife is lesser. Think about this for a minute. Jesus himself says to be in the place where you serve 
is the place to be most like Jesus. It gives a dignity to being in a place of service, gives a dignity to being in a place where you're allowing someone else to lead, and then putting these two ideas together to say, you lead by serving God's people. You lead by serving those under your care. Fathers, parents, those of you who are in a supervisory role at work, this this principle plays out in every relationship. The way you lead is by serving those under your authority. Now, serving not in just saying, what do you guys want? We're going to take a pollster. We'll give you what you want. That's not, that's not leadership. But saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to scour the word of God. I'm going to understand what our mission is. And let's, let me do what is best for those under me. Not what is best for me at the expense of others, but what is best for them at the expense of myself. That's the model Jesus gives to us. That's the model of true leadership. Not, how can I benefit from my position? But how can I use my position to benefit and to better those that God has placed under my care? That's true if you're a pastor. That's true if you're a father. That's true if you're a leader. That's true of just about all of us in this room who have some measure of influence in other people's lives. Now, some of you have had experiences with leadership where authority was not exercised in that way. You've had experiences with authority where authority was abused and misused. I want to say that my heart goes out to you. The God-given role of using authority is such a sacred trust. To abuse it is a serious sin. It is a grievous sin for a parent to misuse their authority, for a pastor to be spiritually abusive, for someone even to use their position to take advantage of other people sexually or, or, or use physical force. That is wicked and evil because authority is a good gift. There's a principle in the Bible. The more sacred a gift or an act the greater the danger is that comes when it is misused. It's like a sharp knife that could be used to, to, to beautifully cut a slice of meat. could also be a really deadly weapon. Authority is the same way. It is a good gift from God, and it is because it is a good gift from God that it can be horribly misused. So please, do not throw out the goodness of authority because of the abuse of authority. Only good things can be misused, Right? So Paul serves with humility, but he also serves with passion. If you look in verse 18, he says, I, I was with you in all seasons. You saw how, this, how I lived consistently, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and trials. He's not, the, the tears are not a result of the trials. Oh, my ministry is so hard, I'm going to cry. But the tears saying he had a deep concern and passion for those he served. Paul says in Romans 9 and Romans 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He even says, I I would wish myself accursed for their sake. He had this deep passion to say, those who I'm preaching to, those I'm ministering to, I want to see them make it to heaven. I want to see them conform to the image of Christ. And he put his heart out there. Paul's no cold logician. He was broken hearted over the lostness of his listeners. He was overcome with genuine love for his converts. He eagerly and passionately pled with them to pursue Christ. And that didn't mean that everybody liked him. He said, if I just love people and I'm nice to people, they'll all like me in return. No, he's, he said, I had these testings that came about as a result of the lying in wait of the Jews. He faced plots against his life again and again. To lead is to face opposition, right? It means you're going to be out ahead and, and, and saying, we're going to go this way, even though there's a, a mountain that we have to cross, even though that there is a lion in the street. We're going to go that way. Be willing to face it. So how do you do it? How do you... How do you Exercise servant leadership. It goes back to the beginning of verse 19. Serving 
the Lord. Beloved, if you are leading, if you are ministering, just average ordinary Christian in average ordinary ways, if you're doing it for the applause of other people, you will get discouraged because you're not going to get the applause. So I'm doing it because I want to be recognized or because you know, the pastor is going to be there and he's going to notice me doing this. If you're, if you're serving for the recognition of the pastor, the applause of people, a feeling of personal accomplishment, you're soon going to burn out. But if you say, I'm serving the Lord, I'm serving Christ, and it's his approval that I'm seeking, and it doesn't matter if the whole world stands against me, I'm willing to go that way. Then you will serve the Lord faithfully in all seasons from the first day you came until the day you leave. But the third characteristic... The third characteristic of this healthy leadership, it's shared, it's servant leadership, but thirdly, I'm going to call it expository leadership. Verse 20 and verse 21, he says, I'm going to remind you of something else. You know not only how I served, but verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you, announced, heralded to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, so publicly and privately, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, not only repentance, but also faith. Uh, Notice in verse 24, he says, I want to finish the ministry which I received of the Lord to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, he says, those of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. He says in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you all the counsel of God. Now, here's the thing about Paul's leadership. This is really, really important. Spiritual leadership within the church is primarily exercised through the teaching of God's word. In fact, the main skill that God calls for a pastor and elder to have is what what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that he must be apt to teach. It's really amazing. God does not say pastors must be awesome organizers. He does not say that pastors must be really, really good at doing business. He does not say that pastors must be great motivational speakers who can get people to charge after a goal. He does say they must be apt to teach. And that's, in fact, the, 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 the centrality of the declaration of God's word is why there is the office of deacon. If you go back and read Acts chapter 6, the apostles say, okay, there's this need in the church, this practical need in the church. They said it is not right for us to leave the word of God to serve tables. It's not saying that well, serving tables is beneath us. But it is to say the teaching and the declaration of the word of God is the primary calling of the pastor. And if he is spending all of his time sort of organizing things and making sure that the, the, the roof is not leaking, uh, he won't be able to adequately discharge that responsibility. So God says we're going to have these other men called deacons who are appointed to fill those roles to make sure the practical needs are met, to free the elders up to be focused on the ministry of the word. Expository leadership. Pastoral authority is not the authority for the pastor to be the personal Holy Spirit for people. I've seen this where pastor acts as if he is a dictator over the souls and consciences of his sheep. That is not right. Only the word of God can bind someone's conscience. Now, a pastor can authoritatively say, thus says the Lord, and God's people are obligated to do whatever God says, but it's not because the pastor said it, it's because the Bible said it. Pastoral authority is not about demanding conformity to his personal whims or expectations. It is about calling God's people to conformity to God's word. So notice all the words that are sort of declaratory, sort of speaking words. We have in verse 20, uh, I have showed you, okay, I have announced to you, I have taught you. There's testify in verse 21. We get the word preaching in verse 24, or, or testify in verse 24, preaching further on down and declaring. 
Paul's leadership was primarily declaratory, not let me just tell you what I want you to do, but here's what God says you must do. Now, the content of his message, we, we get some of his content here. He says, uh, I testify to you repentance toward God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's giving the gospel and calling his hearers again and again, believe in Jesus. But that's not all. He's not just giving the gospel, but in verse 24, he's giving the gospel of the grace of God, God's favor and his acceptance You think, well, that's just telling people how to get saved. No, down in verse 32, he says that same message of grace is what builds you up. So he works not only to see his hearers come to faith in Jesus, but built up to be more like Jesus. He says that he declared to them the kingdom of God and the whole counsel of God, the whole message of Scripture. This is systematic teaching of God's word. This is not hopping around, here's a topical message here, and a a self-help talk over here. Here's not felt needs. But it is, what does God's word demand of us from Genesis to Revelation? In other words, Paul made it his goal to systematically teach the whole of Scripture to the whole church. Notice we have in verse 20, he says, I did it publicly and from house to house. Now, house to house is not so much that, like, you know, the Bible is saying you must do door-to-door evangelism. Rather, this is saying I taught you publicly and I taught you privately. Sometimes public gatherings like the one we're in, but also private gatherings like small groups and Bible studies and personal evangelism. He's like, I'm making it a point to to get the word and convey it to to all of you, whether publicly or privately. Verse 21 says he did this for Jew and for Greek. He didn't play favorites. He didn't say, well, I like the Jewish people, so I'm just going to have a ministry to them, to Jew and to Gentile. He emphasized repentance and faith, both God's grace and God's kingdom and both God's divine plan and human responsibility. There's a comprehensiveness to this. So I I kept back nothing that was profitable. I love the language of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired, and it is what? Profitable. So for Paul to say, I kept back nothing that was profitable, is to say, I gave you scripture again and again and again. Because all of Scripture is inspired and because all of Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, all of Scripture must be read. All of Scripture must be studied. All of Scripture must be taught. All of Scripture must be preached. So I encourage you as you're going through your Bible reading and you're coming into the minor prophets, you're like, oh, this doesn't seem relevant. No, it's given by God and it is profitable. The genealogies are given by God and they're profitable. The law of Moses is given by God, and it is profitable. Now, it may not apply to us in exactly the same way as it did to the original hearers, but it has something to teach us. So if the primary way that elders, pastors, exercise leadership is by declaring God's word, then what should the primary response of God's people be? Well, it should be to come to hear God's word, uh, to say, man, I want to support my pastor. You know, one of the most encouraging things you can do for your, for your leaders is come to church. I mean, that's really simple. I'll just be transparent with you. Few things are more discouraging than just seeing people not come to church. You spend all week laboring in the Word, and you're like, man, I'm ready to do it. And then you're like, something more important came up, or I wanted to watch the football game, or go fishing, or whatever the case may be. And there's legitimate reasons. I get it. Sickness and family concerns and travel. But there should be a value we place on the, the preaching and the teaching of the Word. If the primary way that that God leads and shapes his church is by the preaching of the word, then not only should we come and listen, but we should apply what we hear. Remember James 1 says, you know, let every man be be slow to anger, slow to wrath, uh, but swift to hear, or slow to speak, slow to wrath, swift uh, swift to hear. And he says, then he talks about listening and hearing the word of God. 
So it's not just hearing it, but true hearing is about doing it. It's about uh, applying it. He says, we're like someone who looks in a mirror and then you forget what you look like and you go out with you know, a big piece of spinach on your teeth. We need to come back and revisit what we get from the Word. That's why we have fellowship groups in part, is to give us an opportunity to come back and say, how can I apply God's Word to my life? Listen attentively, ask questions, make applications to your life. Another implication here of the preaching of the Word Paul says in verse 32, the word of his grace is what is able to build you up. If the preaching of the word and the declaration of the gospel is the way that God builds his church, both spiritually and numerically, both in its depth and in its breadth, then pray for the preaching of God's word. Pray for the preaching of God's word. Pray, God, would you help Pastor Sam as he studies? Would you help Michael as he studies? Would you help Brian as he studies to teach the word? Pray for the Sunday school teachers, for Kim and Rachel as they prepare. Pray for the Awana teachers as they resume Awana next week. Pray for the the preparation and also the proclamation of God's word. And if it's God's will for a church to have a plurality of people doing this, then what kind of people should you be considering and praying about becoming elders? It's not just the people who are popular and liked within the church, but you want to look around and say, Who else in this room, who else within this assembly can faithfully and and accurately teach God's word? Maybe that's not publicly standing up and preaching. Maybe that's more the house-to-house, one-on-one kind of ministry. Uh, Paul did both. So some people handle the word better in private settings and others better in public settings. The, The statement apt to teach does not mean that someone must be a good public speaker, but it does mean they need to be a good handler of God's word. And some of us can do the public speaking thing. Other people excel at counseling. I feel like I have a strength more towards public teaching than I do to to, to counseling. And there may be other people that God has gifted in that way that would make excellent elders. But let's move on to a fourth characteristic of Christ-honoring leadership. It's shared, not just one guy doing whatever. It's servant leadership, serving Christ. It's expository, rooted in the word. But fourth, it is sacrificial. Notice how Paul describes his own suffering. Verse 22, he says, and now, okay, that's my past ministry among you, and now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit, or literally bound by the Spirit. The Spirit of God had impressed upon Paul the necessity of his going to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. So he knows God wants me to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen, except that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So the, the same Holy Spirit who impressed upon Paul the need of going to Jerusalem, also was telling him, and Paul, be careful, it's going to be dangerous there. Later on, we see in in Acts various people at churches along the way saying, Paul, please don't go. Like, you're you're going to be bound like, like this belt ties my hand. And yet Paul went anyway. Now, some people have said, like, oh, Paul must have been disobeying the Spirit's leading. I don't believe that at all. I believe Paul was within the center of God's will. This is what the Spirit of God wanted him to do, was to go to Jerusalem So why the warning that bonds and afflictions would await him? This is not to deter Paul, but to prepare Paul. All right. So God will tell us sometimes, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution simply because you face hardship. Simply because you face hardship does not mean that you are out of God's will. Sometimes we put on a set of glasses that says, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, it's going to be smooth sailing and everything's going to be great. Tell that to Paul. Paul went where God wanted him to go, and he faced incredible suffering. Our our, our Lord, he always did those things which pleased the Father, and he was betrayed by one of his disciples and handed over to the leaders and crucified and rejected by his own people. 
and yet he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Now, that's not to say that if things are going well, I must be out of God's will. Um, Sometimes God does lead us beside the still water. Sometimes he does lead us in, in times where his favor is upon us and, and, and people are heeding the message of God. But the point being, Paul was willing to suffer. He was willing to put his money where his mouth was. He was willing to say, I'm calling you to follow Jesus faithfully. I'm willing to follow Jesus faithfully. In verse 24, he says, my desire, his desire is not this sort of perverse death wish, okay? Paul is not saying, I'm, I just want to go and, and recklessly do whatever, and I'm going to suffer. He's not being imprudent. He's simply being faithful. He says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. The, the, the idiom in the Greek is sort of the idea of, it's not even, my life's not even worth mentioning. <laughs> what matters is faithfulness to Jesus, even if it costs my life. My desire is to finish the race, the course, and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul would say at the end of his life, his final words, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul really would live this out before it was all said and done. He would come across the finish line without faltering. Now here's the thing that we find out, just back over a page in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul's plan that's evident here is he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's got this love offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And he's like, when that's done, I'm going to go to Rome. And then Rome is going to be a launch pad to go even further west. Around the same time, Paul writes a letter to some Christians in Rome. And at the end of that letter, he, he makes the statement I want to go to new fields where I've never been before. I want to go places that I've never preached before. I want to go west into Spain. That's his plan. Now, did Paul ever, ever do that? He goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's kept a prisoner in Caesarea Maritima for three years. And eventually he realizes he's a political football, so he appeals to Caesar. He's put on a boat. The boat is shipwrecked, and they sort of float to the island, and he gets bit by a snake. Eventually he makes it to Rome. He really does fulfill this purpose, just not the way he envisioned And whether he went to Spain or not is not known. But Paul is always driving to do the next thing even when it costs. Some people aspire to to leadership because they like to have prominence. That's a terrible motive. Uh, You'll be be disappointed. Um, It's not that exciting. At times you'll have criticism. At times you'll have opposition. And yes, there are great joys to, to, to leading God's people. But there must be a willingness to suffer. There must be a willingness to, to take, take criticism. Um, and, and I'm not pretending that I've, I've ever had to go through intense criticism or anything approximating persecution. But the day may come. The day may come when that is the case. The fifth characteristic of Christ-honoring leadership is what we're going to call vigilant leadership. Vigilant leadership. So Paul is done talking about himself. Now he speaks directly to the, the elders. Verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves. So he goes just sort of straight into this almost staccato being like, I've done talking about this as far as you guys are concerned, these pastors who are sitting around him. You take heed, you pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Down in verse 31, therefore watch 
And remember that I did not, over the space of three years, I did not cease to warn every one of you day and night with, with tears. This call to, to take heed and to watch is saying, okay, the job of the pastor, the job of the elder is to be vigilant in two areas. First one is feeding the flock and the other is fighting the wolves. So it says, you watch over yourselves so as to feed the flock. Interesting, he says, watch over yourselves. The first charge for really any Christian before you can sort of help someone else is to make sure you yourself are following Jesus. Leaders cannot, go, cannot lead where they themselves are not going. You can't care for someone else's soul if you don't care for your own. He says, watch your own soul, watch your own life. But notice it's plural. Take ye therefore unto yourselves. Like, like who keeps the pastor accountable? The answer, the other pastors. That's why the, 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 the plurality, the team, is so important. Is there, are, there are men who are mutually accountable to each other, who watch over one another's lives and doctrine. Pastors need fellow elders who will ask after their devotional life, who will speak into their marriage, who can offer counsel in their decisions, and share the weight of difficult decisions. So he says, watch over yourselves and over all the flock. Not just the Jews or not just the Gentiles, but, but all of the flock, irrespective of stage in life, irrespective of ethnicity. And again, having multiple shepherds, multiple elders sharing that oversight can ensure that the entire church is cared for and known and shepherded. This is public ministry and private ministry and one-on-one ministry and preaching and counsel and discipleship and discipline. Now, this presupposes that the flock allows the, the shepherd to shepherd them. It's really hard to be a pastor when people don't let you pastor them. And you can't force, force that to happen, I suppose. So there's an implication there to the, to the flock. Allow the pastors God has given to you to pastor you. The leaders God has given you to lead you. The teachers God has given you to teach you. But Paul underscores the seriousness of this. He says, pay attention to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who made you an overseer? Who made you a bishop? It wasn't you. It wasn't even the church when they, when they voted. Or in this case, Paul probably appointed these men. It's ultimately the Holy Spirit who calls and equips. But even to double down further, feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. This is a, a, a staggering statement. To look at the church of Jesus Christ as bought with God's own blood. Nothing more, no being more infinite or valuable in all the universe than God. And he sent his own son to die in the place to redeem his church, which means the church, this gathering of ordinary people made uh, of just ordinary elements, made of just the dust of the ground, are of infinite value to God. And to mess with his church or to abuse his church or to mislead his church is to touch the very apple of God's eye. It's a serious thing. Now, a little comment here on the statement, purchased with his own blood. This has caused all manner of confusion because people recognize God does not have a body, therefore God does not have blood. One way that this could legitimately be rendered, which he has purchased with the blood of his own. That's an idiom in Greek to mean of his own beloved. So God purchased the church with the blood of his beloved son, who is divine. But the blood, uh, the blood of his own son. We see all three persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit appoints the elders to be overseers over Christ's church. The church belongs to God. It's the church of God. He's the focus and the king over it. And Christ, God's own, God's own son, God's own beloved, is the one who redeemed it. The church is of Trinitarian 
infinite value. Oh, to look at the church and treat it as something that doesn't matter. Or to sit around just berating the church or to be, oh, the church is just a failure. Man, this is super easy to do for, for you know, online people to be like, oh, look at all the ways the church has failed and it's failed and it's horrible and the church is this and the church is that. One thing that the, and those things may be true at times. The bride of Christ is not always faithful to her spouse. But never lose sight of the fact that the church, this institution, this, this expression of it is of infinite value to God. Ought it not to be of great value to us as well? Ought it not to have a place of supremacy over every institution of human origin? Ought it not be more important than the, the next sporting event or the next? It needs to be valuable. Now, pastors not only are called to feed the flock, which is done primarily through teaching. We talked about expository ministry. But they're also to fight the wolves. Verse 29, here's the reason why he's saying you need to pay attention to feed the flock, for I know that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So if the pastors are compared to shepherds and the church is compared to a flock of sheep, the false teachers are compared to wolves who come in and want to eat the sheep. Okay? In the ancient world, wolves are sort of the, the, the classic enemy of sheep. Sheep are pretty vulnerable. You know, sheep don't exactly have big claws and, and, and teeth and whatnot to defend themselves. They require the defense of, of, of shepherds. It says the, the wolves are going to come in, verse 30, and of your own selves, from even among the eldership, shall men arise speaking perverse things for this purpose, to draw away disciples after themselves. Shepherds' task not only involved fighting, uh, feeding the sheep, but also fighting the wolves. It's been said that the, the pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for scattering the wolves. These wolves, Jesus warned back in Matthew 7, would come, how? Dressed in sheep's clothing. See, a lot of times the dangers we are aware of, you know, in regards to the church, we're, we're keenly aware of the dangers sort of posed by secular, perverted culture. It's not hard for Christians to say, man, I'm, I'm looking at this, this LGBTQ agenda, and I'm seeing that's contrary to God's word. But really, how many people is that pulling away from conservative churches? Not many. But you know what is? Unfaithful teaching of God's word, a low view of God. You know what is a real danger to the souls of people within this church? Is having a glib attitude towards the holiness and the glory and the majesty of God. Sometimes the dangers are not the obvious dangers that lurk outside, and we should be aware of those. I'm not diminishing that. But are the ones that seek to infiltrate, come in, the ones that would even arise from behind pulpits, false teachers don't come in with a big sign around their neck saying, I'm a false teacher teaching heretical things. They sit in pews and stand behind pulpits. And what do they do? Verse 30, they speak perverse things. Now, don't think like sort of morally perverse where they're up using filthy language and telling off-color jokes. That just means things that are twisted, things that have been taking the truth of God's word and twisting it just a little bit to where it no longer means what God intended it to mean. And why do they do that? To draw away disciples after them. If I'm going to get a following, I need to be saying something that no one else is saying. If I'm going to sort of get a niche market here, like, man, I want to be a church that's not like any other church in Mobile, let me come up with a way where I can have this novel thing that no one else is doing. Beware, beloved, of novelty. <laughs> Beware of someone who's coming along saying, hey, I'm saying something that no other church has ever gotten right. Or someone who says, we're the only church in this whole city that's teaching the gospel correctly. Red flags ought to be going up. 
And someone comes along, your teachers have been lying to you, and everybody has gotten this thing wrong until I came along and got this great insight. And be doubly aware, be doubly concerned when someone comes along and says, God told me something, and the next thing that comes out of their mouth is not the word of God from Scripture. Beware of someone who says, I had a dream or a vision or an impression, and and they're not giving you what God's word says. Listen, if their dream or impression agrees with the Bible, it was completely and utterly unnecessary. And if it disagrees with the Bible, it is false. Though an angel from heaven come and preach to you any other gospel than what I have preached, let him be anathema. The Bible has its strongest language against those who would try to lead God's people astray with false teaching and false doctrine. Whether that is the the false message of the prosperity gospel, whether that is the the false message of Christian nationalism, whether that is the, the false message of you can have all of this word from God and this experience that goes against Scripture drawing men away after themselves, away from the truth that has always been handed down from God's word. So fight the wolves. So how, how do shepherds do this? Well, positively, you prepare the sheep by teaching the word of God faithfully day in and day out. The way to spot a counterfeit is to know the truth. But at times, there, there, are, there is a requirement to expose error. We have this idea today that we just want people to sort of be positive and encouraging and, and never sort of go negative and, and call expose things that are false. Now, let me be the first to say a steady diet of every week we're going to expose another false teacher and another teaching over here, and, and all you're doing is exposing error, and we alone is right, are right. That can lead to a very, uh, a, a very atrophied church, right? That can lead to a church that's very critical but not loving. But that said, there are times when the wolves have to be exposed where the mask must be ripped off. Another way that pastors can protect the church is by having a careful way of of knowing who the sheep are and bringing members in to the church. When somebody joins our church, I I make it a practice to sit down and say, give me your your testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus? Pretty picky about who stands behind this pulpit. Don't just anyone who calls. I get calls all the time. Hey, can I come present? Can I come present? I don't know who you are. Like, I want to be careful about stewarding the, the teaching ministry of this church. We come to a sixth characteristic of, of healthy leadership. I'm going to call it diligent leadership. Um, leadership that has integrity, leadership that is hardworking, leadership that's generous. So verse 33, Paul, after he commends them to the grace of God, we'll return to that in just a second, says this, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You know that these hands, you can see I'm putting these, these hands ministered into my necessities. In other words, Paul's like, I, while I was among you, I wasn't going around with a handout. Give me money, give me money. But I just used my hands and I got to work. Paul made tents, right? We know that he at times would support himself. Uh, that's not to say that that's the norm. He also is the one who would write that laborer is worthy of his hire and he commands the church at Corinth to pay their pastors. And he says in 1 Timothy 5 to these same guys uh, that the, those who labor in the word are worthy of a double honor, of, a, of respect and also an honorarium and payment. But the point being is Paul says, I wasn't greedy and I worked hard. And I've showed you in all things how you, that's so laboring, you ought to support the weak. It's like I worked not only to meet my own needs, but to be generous. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And of course, that's a phrase that you can't find an exact cross-reference for, but I think is a summary of so many things Jesus said about money. One of the occupational hazards um, of those in spiritual leadership is greed. And one of the hallmarks of false false teachers is greed. 
Uh, so you read 1 Timothy, also written to the church at Ephesus. Paul takes a big chunk of 1 Timothy 6, say, godliness with contentment is great gain, right? This, this longing for, for, for money and, and even what we read in 1, 1 Peter 5, where, where Peter says, you don't minister for filthy lucre's sake. Like, man, I'm really in this for the money. Uh, obviously, when they wrote that, they were, weren't thinking primarily of Baptists, um, but I'm, I'm kidding. This church takes good, good care of our family. Uh, but the point being here is go to war against materialism. Listen, if a, if a teacher is flying around, a, you know, someone who claims to be a, a shepherd of God's people is flying around in a private jet and driving this fancy car and making millions and millions of dollars, pretty good chance you're looking at a false teacher. Pretty good chance you're looking at a false teacher. Uh, now, that doesn't mean some churches have been like, man, we want to just make sure we keep our pastor dependent on God, and so we're going to pay him as little as possible to just make sure his prayer life is, okay, that's not a good attitude either. But diligent leadership that works, works hard. This statement, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, there is a blessing when somebody generously meets your needs. If you've ever been on the receiving end of generosity, there is a great blessing that comes, and, and someone, man, I, I had this need, and they met it, praise God for that. Basically, though, what Paul is saying is not that, like, well, you should never accept gifts, but he's saying giving is greater than getting. You want to find ultimate joy? Ultimate joy is not going to be found by trying to get more and more money and heap more and more money up, but is to be be able to get enough money to meet your needs and then be generous to other people. Generosity is the pathway to joy. Uh, In fact, studies have shown that on some level, right, if you are, 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 are on the poorer end of things, there is a lack of happiness that comes with that, and you're not sure if you're going to make, meet the bills. And so it's sort of there is a correlation between happiness and making money. But after a while, that stops. And getting more money does not make you any more happy. And people believe, I can just get more. There's sort of a, a ceiling on, on what finances, what money, what financial security can do as far as your joy. Real joy is not found in getting more and more and more and more. It's found in giving more and more. So diligent leadership, generous leadership, that's, that's what he is saying. These are the kinds of leaders that a church should want, not the ones who are just in it for the money, but the ones who are in it because they love Jesus. Seventh characteristic, dependent, dependent leadership. The task that God has given to, to, to pastors, to elders, to leaders really in any sphere is, is, is almost overwhelming in how daunting it is. Feed the flock. Fight the wolves. There's going to be deception. There's going to be hardship. There's the, the, the dangers in your own heart. None of us, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, is sufficient for these things. Nobody just automatically comes with these ability to be like, you're going to be a perfect pastor. This is humanly impossible. The only way that this is going to be carried out is by the grace of God. So that's why Paul says in verse 32, And now, brothers, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The only way that you're going to be a faithful pastor, a faithful leader, is by trusting God's grace. And in verse 36, seeking God's face, they kneeled down and they prayed. God has given elders a humanly impossible task of shepherding the divinely purchased and infinitely valuable people of God. He's given them a warning about ravenous wolves that are hard to spot. But he ends this on a great note of hope. Where do we find the resources? I'm all for training and studying God's word, but the hope of a successful ministry is not found in more degrees. I'm a great fan in having right 
polity, of having plurality and doing things, structuring uh, church leadership the way that God has ordained. But that's not the great hope. The great hope is the grace and the word of God. Notice what he says about the word of his grace. The message of the grace, the gospel message. I think a lot of us have this, this wrong assumption that the gospel message is what I believe in order to sort of be converted. I believe the gospel, I'm converted, and then pff, off I go on the Christian life. Notice what he says about the gospel, the word of his grace. It is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. The same gospel, the same grace of God that brought you to a place of trusting in Jesus, that forgave your sin, is the same favor of God, the same power of God, that will help you live a holy life every day thereafter. So we sing an amazing grace. The same grace that saved a wretch like me is the same grace that will lead me home. From beginning to end, the entirety of the Christian life is by the grace of God. Not for one millisecond does the Christian life depend on you and your ability and your strength and your willpower. Now, we do have to obey God, but even our obedience is motivated by the grace of God. All of us should live every day in a conscious sense of, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need the finished work and the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from my sin because I am a sinner. And every day I need to avail myself of the pardoning power of God's mercy. So Christ-honoring leaders are not those who have confidence in their plans or the latest strategies or the best education or their rhetoric, though all of those things matter. They are those who are supremely aware of their dependence on God's grace. It will make you a better leader. If one of the dangers of leadership is harshness and domineering, you know who the best people are to give God's grace to other people and show grace to other people, those who are keenly aware of how much they need it. That's true. In your marriage, your, your, your spouse is going to fail and sin against you. Uh, if you haven't realized that yet, you will eventually. The only thing that's going to keep your marriage going is if you show grace and forgiveness. And the only way that you're going to be able to unleash that is if you recognize, I'm a sinner. God has forgiven me so immensely. What is it to forgive my spouse of, you know, once again doing that thing that drives me crazy. Or your kids. Your kids are going to mess up. They become sinners, right? They come needing Jesus. And there are going to be days where they don't obey and days where they really push your buttons. How are you going to show grace and forgiveness towards them? Is by being keenly aware that I need God's grace. Having that sense of I've arrived and no one else has leads to harshness. But recognizing I'm in the middle of my sanctification. I've not yet attained. I'm not there yet means that those who are also on that journey, I'm not going to like hold it against them that they're in a different place on that journey than I am. So in verse 36, this is expressed, this dependence is expressed through prayer. Paul writes, the great apostle Paul, you're like, man, if anybody had their Christian life together, it's Paul, right? No, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, brethren, pray for us. He pleads for prayer in Ephesians 6, verses 19 to 20. He pleads for prayer in Colossians 4 and verse 3, and 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians 3, verse 1, and Romans 15, verse 30. Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. And that is my plea to you, church family. Pray for us who have been tasked with this responsibility of leading God's church. Pray for God to protect us from temptation. Pray for God to protect your leaders from opposition and from criticism and from... All the things that could discourage. Now, verses 36 and 38, when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down, he prayed with them. 
They all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. He had said that back in verse uh, verse 25, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. And this is maybe a shocking statement to you, but Christ-honoring leadership is temporary. No leader will last forever. You might say, well, there's pastors who stay in their same church for 50 years, and they're eventually going to die. Every pastor eventually is going to leave or die. And if a church has a mentality or a pastor has a mentality that this is going to last forever, and we don't have to think about the future, that's a sure way for churches to die. If we care about Cloverleaf Baptist Church preaching the gospel 100 years from now, we think about the next leaders. We think about the baton handoffs that are going to happen down the road. We think about raising up elders within the church who can carry on the work of the ministry when pastors come and pastors go. The reality is leaders eventually leave. And that is a good thing because if we get too dependent on a human leader, we won't stand on our own two feet. If you always have the training wheels on your bike, you never learn how to ride the bike. Uh, if, you, if you sort of go through, you know, you're learning a language and you always use your cheat cards to try to remember your conjugations, you never learn how to speak the language. Paul had this, this mentality that he would come in, he would start a church, he would appoint leaders, and then he would start backing away because the goal of the Great Commission is for leaders to work themselves out of a job. The goal of the Great Commission is for other people to rise up who can preach the word better than I can and lead God's people better than I can and carry this work on, not only in five years, but 50 years from now. If we cling to just the moment, if we don't look to the next generation, we won't perpetuate the gospel because the gospel message is not just for us, but it is for our children and for our grandchildren and for as many as the Lord shall call. Prepare for the day when this generation departs and the next generation comes in. Prepare for when one leader leaves and the next one comes in. And the reality is pastors are going to come and pastors are going to go. Paul passed off the scene and handed these things off to the elders in Ephesus. And eventually they died and passed it off to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. This handoff of truth, of the deposit of truth passed off without change, without manipulation, without subtraction from one generation to the next. That's what parents are called to do. Your goal as a parent is to raise kids who can take the gospel and take the truth of God and live that as they walk on their own two feet. And so it is as a pastor. So Paul would write to, the, to Timothy at Ephesus, what you've heard of me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I want to end on this note. We sang today about the perfect authority of King Jesus. He will reign forever. We sang about the fact that our hope is in the Lord, not in any human being. Yes, love your leaders, pray for your leaders, but recognize your, your leaders have feet of clay. Recognize that leaders are going to fail at times. Leaders eventually are going to die or leave. They're going to fall short of the glory of God just like all of us. Leaders are going to make blunders. They're going to be at times insensitive and leave feelings hurt. They're going to be blind at times to things that they do and say. But listen, Jesus will not. Just because you may have been hurt at some point by a Christian leader, does not mean that Jesus did that. Imperfect Christians, the fact that there are imperfect Christians does not mean that there is an imperfect Christ. Leaders might hurt you, but Jesus will not. So put your trust and your hope ultimately in him. 
ultimately in him. I want to just conclude with a statement from 1 Timothy. Because ultimately, having the right kind of leaders in the church is a matter of faithfulness to King Jesus. It's only a a matter of saying his authority is ultimate, his rule is ultimate, and we honor him by following his word. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together as we prepare for our final hymn. You just pray with me.